Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 356, The Petition of Right. First of all, I have a quick message from my mate Royfield. You might know him also from the things that made England that we're both part of. And he's involved in some tremendous podcasts. Anyway, here we go. Psst, do you like maps and travel, discovering the world? If you do, got a pod for that. It's called Map Corner. Or how about Formula One? That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. If so, got a pod for that too. It's called the Race Directors Podcast. Ooh, or maybe you quite like HP Source, Margaret Thatcher 1066 or Clem Attlee. That one's called The Things That Made England. How about reggae? Or the spread of cultural influence of Jamaicans all around the world. How about Colin Powell? I cannot tell you everything. Got a podcast know. about that too. That's called How Jamaica Conquered the World. Or perhaps you like things a little bit more sedate. How about the archers? You were fan. If so, that one's called Dumpty Dum. Hello, Ambridge3962. Or maybe you like things a little bit more historical. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, I've got a podcast for that too. It's called 10 American Presidents, where I look at the 10 most pivotal presidencies in all of American history. Possibly you like things a little bit more up to date. I recognise we have made mistakes. I'm sorry. I've fixed mistakes. I've appointed Maybe a you're a fan of Liz Truss. Don't know who is, but maybe you are. Or Keir Starmer, or Joe Biden, or Nancy Pelosi. All those things and more are discussed in Mid-Atlantic. Why not listen to any one of those podcasts today? By going onto a podcatcher of your choice, typing in Roy Field Brown. Enjoy. First again, yet another apology. I have been caught once more in error. Oh, woe is me, quel désespoir and all that. I am nicked. I have been informed that I claimed that it was Mary Poppins who told us we had to start from the very beginning before proceeding to Doe, a statement so shockingly stupid as to make the Midgard serpent itself shudder. It was, of course, as I always knew deep down, Maria von Trapp. Maria, Julie, I'm sorry. So, we left last week with the forced loan and its glittering financial success, but probable dark and gloomy political cost, and a story of resistance 
left without a focus. Well, while that rumbled on, the political world rumbled right on with it. There were five people who not only refused to pay, but decided to fight back. All were knights, all had been duly thrown into prison on their refusal to pay. So far, so standard. Now, normally, if they'd read the script, Thomas Darnell, John Corbett, Walter Earle, John Hevingham and Edmund Hamden would now bow to pressure and hand over the dough or stay silently at the king's pleasure until released. But they decided instead to challenge the king by using the law. So they appealed for a writ of habeas corpus, which demanded the king state specifically why they had been arrested, and if he didn't, be released instead on bail. Since the ground on which they had in fact been arrested was for non-payment of a loan that a chief justice had ruled to be illegal, this was a touchy sort of case that the king would rather not come up in court. And so, the king sat on the writs until November and until he considered them warm enough to be hatched and finally agreed the case should proceed. The Privy Council argued that the king had a special right of command, a discretionary right to arrest anyone on high matters of state. And in fact, this usually would not have been that contentious and a good, solid defence, odd as that sounds to the modern ear, if, like the gunpowder plot, for example... This had been about treason, murder and mayhem. But it wasn't. It was instead about refusal to pay a tax, and a pretty dodgy tax at that. The defence was led by the MP and lawyer John Selden, and you may be amazed to learn that he thought differently, and instead got proper het up and argued furiously that this imprisonment transgressed the Magna Carta, and no man transgresses the Magna Carta and gets away with it. No man can be justly imprisoned by either of them, the king or privy council, he's meaning, without a cause of the commitment expressed in the return, and doing otherwise jeopardised the ancient liberties of free-born Englishmen. The Attorney-General for the prosecution doubled down on his case, which is a good thing, because that was, of course, you know, his job. He argued that the king could not only order arrest at his discretion for matters of state, but he wasn't even then bound to say what the relevant matter of state actually was. After all, there were, in effect, his personal matters in the business of being a king. So, the new Chief Justice had to make a ruling. Nicholas Hyde was not emotionally inclined to stick it to the man. The man was his boss. And when he'd got his job, when his predecessor had been sacked for disagreeing with the man, his boss. So instead, Nicholas tried to avoid the issue. He gave a curious ruling which said that on the basis that he couldn't find a specific law that had been broken here, so the prisoners should be refused bail. He gave this judgment, though, as a temporary order so that it shouldn't set a precedent and be taken as judge-made law. Essentially, he tried to steer the ship carefully between Scylla and Charybdis, between both the views of Parliament and of King. The King's actions had not been declared illegal, the knights remained in the King's power, collection of the forced loan could continue. And yet, law had not been made. So on paper, at least, the rights of his subjects under Magna Carta had not been clipped. Chief Justice Hyde knew himself to be a peacemaker as blessed as any maker of dairy products. The alternative view to this comfortable one was that no one was really happy, because people like being seen to win, so they can talk about it in the future, so that they can wave to the crowd. Many in Parliament were, of course, thoroughly unhappy, and on the royal side, it seemed there was both unhappiness and possibly even underhand efforts to rewrite the record of history. Listen to this one. John Selden angrily claimed that Attorney General Heath later sneakily falsified the public record so that the case should be taken as a final legally binding judgment rather than a temporary one, and thus be made law. 
and most historians accept that he did indeed commit this crime. Either way, imprisonment without cause, seen as an inalienable right of all freeborn Englishmen, da 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 da, seemed to be once more worryingly alienable. One of the five knights, Walter Earl, would become something of a parliamentarian radical later on, and he said this, Take away my religion, and you take away my life, and not only mine, but the life of the whole state and kingdom. For I may boldly say, never was there a more near conjunction between matter of religion and matter of state in any kingdom of the world than there is in this kingdom at this day. I use this quote because it neatly links the strands of religious and secular motivations in the struggle for the English soul. For Walter Earle, the two are inextricably linked. The church was therefore thoroughly and deeply involved and couldn't keep from messing with the pie. As it did once more in February 1627, when one Robert Sibthorpe enters the stage of English history, Bible in hand. Robert Sibthorpe was a vicar in Northamptonshire, and he preached to the upturned faces of his flock that the king's subjects were bound in duty to their princes according to the laws and customs of the kingdom. Well, that sounds okay. But then he got a bit excited and he went on further about the king's awesomeness and puissance. He doth whatsoever pleaseth him, for where the word of the king is, there is power. Warming to his theme, he argued that basically tribute was due to the king, and he came close to arguing that the king's power was absolute, that if a prince impose an immoderate, yea, an unjust tax, Still, the subjects had no right to withdraw his obedience and duty. Getting genuinely flushed now, possibly a little sweaty, he condemned the schismatics, as he called them, referring specifically to the Scots, John Knox and George Buchanan, but also Jesuits and their resistance theories, the one of which makes the church above the king and the pope above the church, and so dethrones princes. I have to tell you, this is not the sort of thing dear old Reverend Walters muttered on about when I was slumbering peacefully in church in my youth. But Charles was listening, and he knew a good thing when he heard it. Here was the perfect background music to the play being enacted on the stage of the forced loan, the absolutely ideal music to be played as subjects were ordered to pay up, to get the audience in the right mood, if you know what I mean, the theological equivalent of the smell of freshly baked bread in the supermarket of financial necessity. So, he turned to his Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, and instructed him to license Sibthorpe's sermon, so that it should be backed by the ecclesiastical hierarchy, essentially, and be used by anyone. A sort of official retweeting, if you like. Well, we've already heard how uncomfortable the forced loan had made George. And this pushed him over the line. He wouldn't do it, he said. It didn't set well with his conscience. Anyway, he pointed out that Sibthorpe had, in fact, said that princes must abide by the laws and the customs of the kingdom. And since the previous chief justice had declared the loan illegal, Sibthorpe's sermon couldn't be used to justify the loan. Red rags, bulls, all of that sort of thing springs immediately to mind, Charles's head exploded, and he insisted that his Archbishop of Canterbury do as he was being told by his, you know, supreme governor. Abbott sang that he would stand his ground, that you could back him up to the gates of hell, but he would not back down. Or, you know, words to that effect. Faced with this, Charles, first of all, went round the immovable object. He found a friend, one Bishop Montaigne, an Arminian of suitably enthusiastic views about royal authority, and had him issue a note saying that, well, he approved of Sibthorpe's sermon. And that's not quite the same as having the Archbishop of Canterbury's official mark. But hey, a retweet is a retweet, whatever the disclaimer says about not meaning approval. That having been done to his satisfaction, 
He settled down with a rocket launcher over his shoulder in the tall grass, took good, careful aim at the rock in the road called George, and in October he pressed the big red button. Abbott was sequestered from his position, fired essentially, although he couldn't actually be stripped of his title as Archbishop of Canterbury, and his powers and authority were placed into commission. That bit of legal gobbledygook meant that the Archbishop of Canterbury was now in practice a group of five bishops managing his powers on his behalf, Montaigne, Neil, Buckridge, Howson and Lord. And hey, look at that! Quite by chance, all of them were Arminians, who the elbow. The arrival of Parliament in 1628 nominally restored his powers, but by that stage he was very ill and would not effectively wield the powers of Canterbury again before his death in 1633. The removal of Abbott was a massive blow to the Calvinist cause. It was also taken as a very bad sign in Scotland, incidentally, where Abbott's presence as an unassailably reliable Calvinist had been very reassuring to them, now the Kirk there were having the same palpitations as the English and the Welsh Calvinists. But there was more in the world of ecclesiastical pie-messing. In July, one Roger Mannering, another gobby cleric, preached two sermons before the king on the happy theme that the king's power came immediately from God, that is to say, not some wonky route via the people or council or any of that kind of stuff. Royal pleasure has the force of command and that no one should call in question the judgment of a king. There's more, so much, so much more. But you're bored of Arminian quotes, now I can tell, so I won't go on about it. Suffice to say that they were so extreme in support of royal authority that they even turned William Lord's stomach and he advised Charles not to publish the sermons because they contained many things distasteful to the people. Tish, stuff, and indeed nonsense, replied the king gaily, with a little hop, skip and a jump. Don't be such a stuffy killjoy. The sermons were duly published, marked by his majesty's special command. Things look bad, very bad for the Calvinista. They really now had only one big friend in the playground to help them. To remind you, Parliament was stuffed full of lay Calvinists. If, if money troubles forced the king to call Parliament again, maybe then the Calvinists would have a chance to fight back. But something dramatic would have to happen to force the king to take that particular route. War, simultaneously with the two most powerful states in Europe, might be considered dramatic, it has to be said. But surely, <laughs> that couldn't be allowed to happen. In fact, Buckingham had put peace feelers out to Spain, would you believe it? And that most certainly put the wind up both the French and the Danes. What could he be doing? Relationships had been Richelieu and the Buck were rock bottom, so much so that their letters even lacked the utterly standard rhetorical flourishes beloved of diplomats. England and France now sort of slipped towards war, little baby steps helping them on the way. The French mained a fleet of 50 ships in the Channel, which looked a bit suspicious and seemed way more than needed, unless you were up to no good or planning to be up to no good in the foreseeable future. The threat to La Rochelle from Richelieu and his king grew. The short-lived peace deal was now off and military preparations were underway. The king very significantly then took possession of the Ile de Ré. Now this dominated the approach to La Rochelle by sea and at last allowed it to be tightly besieged in a way that had not been possible to achieve before by the French monarchy. Attempts at friendship withered on the vine. A French diplomat had come to England and had negotiated an agreement in response to the expulsion of the Queen's household from England. So that's good news then. But when he got home... It was roundly rejected by Richelieu. Meanwhile, English warships, enforcing an embargo on Spanish shipments, stopped and sold the Spanish cargo carried by a French bottom. Not being rude, just being nautical, you know, bottom. The French retaliated by seizing the English wine fleet at Bordeaux. By March, once more the Privy Council were preparing for war against France, 
dusting off the decision that the French could not be trusted anymore and the Huguenots must now be defended against them. In a sense, the war started in a thoroughly traditional English way that Parliament would have totally approved of. In June 1627, English ships were issued with letters of marque to be able to attack French shipping. It was in one sense dramatically successful. In the first two weeks of June, £10,000 worth of goods were seized, and in fact, this stage of the conflict, along with the forced loan, paid itself for a campaign against the French, should it happen. The raids may have raised £120,000 worth. Of course, in terms of keeping the peace, it wasn't a great strategy, but maybe that was never the intention, of course. There's a certain amount of confusion about quite how England and France ended up in a scrap. As we've seen, other nations thought of it in rather personal terms, as a battle between favourites, Buckingham versus Richelieu. I'll put a tenor on Richelieu. And to be brutal, there is some truth in that, it seems. At least, the pair distrusted each other, and so it was a contributory factor. So much so that Buckingham's European strategy now consisted of fusing an alliance with minor states like Lorraine and Savoie to clip French wings and to supporting the Huguenot minority in France, which policy would also incidentally satisfy Protestant opinion back home. And within the mix is a sort of messy little trade war going on. Now, it's difficult to believe that all of this could not have been sorted out diplomatically if the will was there. Except, perhaps, the problem of the Huguenot stronghold of La Rochelle. That Richelieu wanted gone. The Huguenot state within a state was just not compatible with the objective of having a centralised, absolutist monarchy. Either way, by June... Buckingham was ready to sail with a fleet against France, and the war with France was a go. There is then a variety of opinion among historians about the quality of the fleet that sailed, but the prospects of the fleet didn't necessarily look bad. Buckingham had without doubt worked very hard and with great energy to prepare the fleet and its provisioning. Furthermore, plans were put in place to resupply it, a project which Charles was to oversee. Now, whether or not the strategy was right, starting a war against France while still at war with Spain, is certainly questionable, and the ultimate objective of restoring Elizabeth and Frederick to Bohemia seems a very long way off. But tactically, the Ile de Ré was without doubt critical to the survival of Rochette La Rochelle, and La Rochelle to the survival of the Huguenots' independence, and so it was not a bad target to choose. On the other hand, ships' captains moaned about the quality of the seamen they received on the ships. There's a ballad describing drafts as they marched to their rendezvous in Portsmouth. With an old motley coat and a marmsey nose, with an old jerkin that's out at the elbows, and with an old pair of boots drawn on without hose, Stuffed with rags instead of toes. But then, do you know what? To be honest, I suspect complaining about the quality of recruits is a bit like an engineering prof complaining about the low mathematical abilities of their first-year students. It's just a ritual we have to go through. Now, there were cock-ups without doubt. There was plenty of wheat, for example, but no means to bake it initially. Though I did have to laugh at Buckingham's own personal setup, which most certainly was not ignored. 10,000 quid spent on equipping himself and his household. Oxen, milch cows, goats, poultry, a retinue of servants, and one of his most sumptuous coaches. And richly embroidered clothes for his coachman, footman, and pages. If you are looking to cut a dash on a military adventure, you can't scrimp, you know. He even packed a harp for those long, boring evenings of blood-soaked warfare. Anyway, so, the force of 6,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry set sail at the end of June. Not a bad schedule for once for campaigning. This time, Buckingham himself was in control. If you want a job doing well, do it yourself, sort of principle. He wasn't going to have the Wimbledon scenario at Cardiff again. The campaign again has been described as a bit of a farce, and surely there were some questionable decisions. The tactic adopted was to go for broke, straight for the main fortress on Ray, the fortress of Saint-Martin, and it was considered impregnable. But there was an early success 
capturing a fortress, defending it. So things started well. Unfortunately for Buckingham, and this is hardly his fault, Saint-Martin itself had just been resupplied, so it was very well stopped. That meant a long siege was needed, which dragged on and dragged on deep into September. But Buckingham was everywhere, in the trenches, inspecting guns, praising the officers, encouraging the men, didn't sit around playing his harp. And at last, the citadel of Saint-Martin was indeed ready to fall. The French supplies exhausted. English supplies were not much better, but two relief fleets had just set off, organised by Charles. So things looked good. The blockade was firm. But then, at the critical time, a change in the prevailing wind allowed the French to break the blockade and get more supplies into Saint-Martin and the English were faced with the prospect of starting it all over again. Meanwhile, to add insult to injury, Charles's relief fleets were scattered by storms, so the English were now the ones without food on the table. In desperation, Buckingham, against all advice, tried a final desperate throw of the dice, a full frontal assault against Saint-Martin. And this is where France does indeed come into the story, it failed because the scaling ladders were too short. Oops, easy mistake to make. In November, the besiegers became the besieged. The French sallied out to attack Buckingham in camp and there was nothing to do but withdraw in abject failure. 5,000 men did not return to England and 40 regimental colours were left behind on what wags were now calling the Isle of Rue. Now look, it was in fact a pretty close-run thing. Buckingham had worked hard. He had organised a credible military campaign, pushed the French very hard, and could, with some justice, claim he'd won the silver medal by right. But in a two-horse race, there were no buttered parsnips here. The Rochellois were left in a hideously exposed state. Meanwhile, there were rumours of a French-Spanish rapprochement. Rather cutely and indeed generously, Charles blamed himself for the failure of campaign not Buckingham, focusing on the failure of the resupply to reach Buckingham in time. And although, quite unusually in fact, Buckingham took considerable time and effort to make sure the men that returned this time were looked after, something Elizabeth signally failed to do, that didn't really cut it either. None of those were focused on by the libelers and ballad writers as I'm sure you can imagine. They did not go for the well-played, jolly hard luck, better luck next time chap line at all. Here is one of said ballads. And art returned again with all thy faults, thou great commander of all go noughts, and left the isle behind thee? What's the matter? Did winter make thy teeth begin to chatter? Here's a couple of lines of another. These things have lost our honour, men surmise, thy treachery, neglect and cowardice. There were wilder rumours going around as well. Buckingham was actually leading a subtle popish plot to wipe out Protestantism in France under the guise of a Protestant campaign. Conspiracy theories in spades. Thomas Wentworth, who had not only been kept from the 1626 Parliament but had now refused to pay the forced loan, wrote that the whole affair had been ill-begun, worse ordered in every particular, and the success accordingly most lamentable. This only every man knows, that since England was England it received not so dishonourable a blow. There was even a painter and decorator in Antwerp, Rubens by name, who declared Buckingham to be nothing but the sport of fortune and the laughing stock of his enemies. Though as a side note, you might also be interested to know at this point that while Buckingham had been away fighting in France, relationships between Charles and Henrietta Maria had thawed, quite dramatically, in his absence. Now, after all, the Queen had been horrified at the war on her brother, but nonetheless in August Charles was able to write, My wife and I were never better together. And Henrietta told her husband that while she was sorry for the war, still she was more concerned with his affairs than those of anyone else. So, there's no cloud without its silvery lining then. 
though I'm not sure starting a major continental war should be recommended as a strategy by more than a handful of marriage counsellors. To give them their due, Charles and Buckingham remained determined not to desert La Rochelle and a new fleet was prepared under the Earl of Denby. But the lack of money was crippling. The Privy Council considered alternatives such as ship money, interestingly, a tax designed to support the fleet specifically, usually only levied on coastal counties, proposed now to be extended to the whole country. Or a new imposition on beer and wine. Now, Lord argued that in the light of the sermons by Sibthorpe, Montague and Mannering, Charles should just go ahead and impose the taxation required, no consent needed from Parliament. But the moderates on the Privy Council knew full well just how desperately unpopular that would be. And so, it was to be Parliament. And in March, the writs were issued. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Well, I'm not going to lie to you, good people. The 1628 to 1629 Parliament moves along tracks that you will recognise. The exact same issues. Supply and subsidies? Yep. Liberties of the people? That's in there. Religion? Oh yes, that comes up too. The elections went badly for the government. 27 of the loan refusers were elected, for example. The number of contested elections was unusually high. There had been much billeting of troops for all these military operations, and seriously, having a bunch of hairy, hungry soldiers dumped on your house was not a way to win friends with the populace. So, Thomas Wentworth was also back, Francis Seymour, John Eliot, all those rabble-rousers, and there was a general feeling that this was the big one, capital B, capital one. One of the moderate MPs, a client of Pembroke, Benjamin Rudyard, said, This is the crisis of Parliament. We shall know by this whether Parliaments live or die. If the King draws one way and the people another, we must all sink. Quite apocalyptic. Charles really didn't help at this point. The Lord Keeper at the Parliament spoke of the dire necessity and the generally really rubbish condition that Protestant states were in all over Germany. And he didn't need to exaggerate there, it has to be said, the Thirty Years' War wasn't going well for them. Charles then spoke briefly, saying that these were times for action and that he'd called Parliament because it was the ancient, speediest and best way for the defence of ourselves and our allies. Oh, very nice. But then he added a threat. That if they didn't pony up, he would be forced to take what he called other courses. Hmm, other courses, eh? It's a sort of don't-make-me-use-this-unspecified-big-stick comment. But look, Charles went on, don't take this as a threat. There's a general relaxation of the crowd at this point. Because, he said, he scorned to threaten any but his equals. Well, patronising or what, cheeky little so-and-so, I am put in mind of the Emperor's new groove and the I-don't-make-deals-with-peasants line. I do love that film. Well, MPs in the Commons were not daunted by this, it must be said, and they set off on their allotted tracks. Francis Seymour returned to his happy ways of 1626 and refused to be possessed of fear or with flattery and started talking about grievances. But there were peacemakers. From the House of Lords, Pembroke and his client in the Commons, Benjamin Rudyard, intervened into all of this, working with the tireless Secretary of State, John Cook, and tried to steer the Commons back to their duty to supply to money for the King. And actually, it worked after a fashion. And the likes of Edward Cook even argued that they must help the King in his necessity. Even Francis Seymour went along with it, though with a major caveat 
which had caused such damage at the last Parliament. What guarantee, he asked, did they have that this money would be well spent? The omens, after all, were hardly good. Other members, however, also thought, unless His Majesty employ men of integrity and experience, all that we give will be cast as into a bottomless bag. Possibly the bottomless bag known as Buckingham shifted uncomfortably in his seat in the Lords when this was reported to him. The Commons was full of elephants. They didn't forget. Still, though, Pembroke and Rudyard's hard work and gambit worked. The Commons agreed to offer five subsidies, yay, and Charles was delighted and he gushed. But he gushed too soon. There was, of course, no date given along with it for submitting these bills. And despite increasingly grumpy, get on with it, messages from Whitehall, darn me if those blessed MPs didn't now start warbling on again about grievances. And they came to the resolution that they should have a general statement of rights enacted in law. And if that had been done, then maybe England would indeed have had some sort of ringing declaration of rights about which we could talk in pubs and that sort of thing, as you do. But as ever in English and then British constitutional history, what we end up instead is with another bit of daub applied to the wattle that is Burke's matchless constitution, because Charles wasn't having some sort of act of Parliament hanging around his neck. So, Edward Cook it was, that hoary old troublemaker, who actually came up with a very clever alternative. All right, he said, we'll make this a petition, not a law. The advantage of this is that it would be a specific statement of what Parliament believed existing law to be and invite Charles to agree to it. It lay somewhere between what Charles wanted, a sort of hand-waving, oh, yes, I confirm all the existing liberties of the subject, which he could then cheerfully interpret as he wished, and the detailed drawing up of a long, tedious constitution, which would, without doubt, end in either a fight or as bump for use by the groom of the stool. So Charles thought, OK, this might work. So there's quite an interesting period here when the Houses of Commons and Houses of Lords negotiate their way through all this, with an increasingly impatient Charles, of course, chewing his nails, tearing at his hair in the background, desperate just to get his dosh. So I'm not going to inflict all that detail on you, but essentially, remember that the Lords and the Commons sit and debate and enact separately, of course, that Lords can still initiate legislation. I've not done a good job at keeping them separate in the narrative about Parliament in general, but while they do have different viewpoints, it's interesting that they clearly see themselves as a joint body, and of course the client, patronage and regional links between the members of each house are very close. So groups in the Lords, especially a group led by Buckingham, try to soften up the petition. To and fro the wording goes, discussed in joint and separate committees. But the Commons hold their ground, and in the Lords there is a very strong group led by Lords Say and Seal and George Abbott, who insisted that nothing should be done without the cooperation of the lower house. The Earl of Bristol was influential here too. Now he might be thought to be an incendiary giving his personal spat with Charles that we talked about in 1626, but actually it's in the spirit of compromise and getting to yes which is most notable here in Bristol's actions. Everyone, Elliot, Cook, Say and Seal, Bristol included, want to get to an agreement, not to provoke a fight. The clauses for this petition of right finally proposed were 1. That no person be forced to provide a gift, loan or tax without an Act of Parliament. 2. None should be imprisoned without cause. Number 3. Military folk should not be billeted without the free consent of the owner. And four, that martial law could only be used in war or against direct rebellion, not by special commissions by the king. Remember, commissions of martial law had caused such enormous mayhem under Elizabeth in Ireland until she had banned them. Charles was indeed also willing to compromise. 
except the one about imprisonment. Now, that related to the five knights still claiming their writs of habeas corpus, and he hated, hated that one. As far as he was concerned, the king had a right to do what was required in an emergency. That was a clear royal prerogative. But his agreement to all the others is quite surprising, and I commend it unto you in support of Kishlansky's view that Charles did indeed compromise on occasion. However, there is much suspicion and distrust. Charles continued to see the commons as driven by a group not looking to re-establish what they saw as their established existing liberties, but as innovators launching an attack on his royal prerogative. This is quite important. So the petition of right appeals to the statutes of Edward I, Edward III, and of course, to good old Magna Carta. Now you can either take the view that the likes of Edward Cook genuinely believed that the petition is just about clarifying that these liberties already exist and that things have got muddied. Or you can believe that Charles was right, that all that was just window dressing for what was in effect a raid on the royal prerogative. Here's what Charles said about that. Some members of the House, blinded with popular applause, have, under show of redeeming the liberty of the subject, endeavoured to destroy our just power of sovereignty. However, Charles's room for manoeuvre was now very limited, and the reality of his position was rammed home when news of Denby's fleet and its brave mission to seek out and relieve La Rochelle arrived home. So Denby had sailed and rocked up at La Rochelle, where he discovered not only Richelieu's French squadron all ready to receive and repel him, but a squadron of Spanish ships at their sides. Now this was Armageddon. Habsburg and France combined. Oh dear. Clearly, at very least, Denby needed a bigger stick. So he ran away. And bigger sticks cost money. The asking price was carefully considered by the Privy Council and thought to be hmm, in the region of £1.3 million. In the Lords, meanwhile, the discussion was about the petition of right. Should the wording demanded by the Commons be softened, which was Buckingham's contention, or should it be accepted in full to maintain unity with the Commons, which was the position taken up by the party led by Lord Say and Seal? It was Lord Say and Seal who won out. If we petition by ourselves, and they by themselves, the petition will be of no strength. So the Lords voted unanimously to use the Commons wording and on the 28th of May the Petition of Right was presented formally to King Charles I. Charles had already decided he must concede in full, even giving up his much-loved right to imprisonment without cause where he considered it necessary. Or at least he decided that he must appear to concede in full. And if he had done so, and done so with grace, we might be talking about the 1628 Parliament and how it put the Stuart monarchy back on track. But he proceeded to throw away much of his advantage. Whether because he didn't really concede it or just through cack-handedness, you decide. So this is what happened next. The accepted form of a positive royal response to a petition, which would give the petition the impact of law and therefore which judges would have to take into account in their judgments, was, let it be done as is desired. In this case, the response from Charles when it came back was not that. It was instead, that right be done according to the laws and customs of the realm. Well, the commas went bonkers, because this response said precisely nothing. These are the same laws and customs whose interpretation was causing all the problems, this answer allowed Charles to continue interpreting the petition in his own way as he chose. The Commons objected, and no doubt the Speaker's briefing to the King was accompanied by furrowed brows, and then meanwhile in the Commons they responded by getting back on the King's case to keep the heat turned up. They prepared a remonstrance against Buckingham. They reopened the war of Calvinist versus Arminian. So, remember what we said earlier? It appeared that if the Calvinists were to keep their position in the Church of England, they must now look to Parliament. And now Parliament responded. They demanded that the Arminian cleric Roger Mannering be prosecuted and his sermons 
far from being supported by the king, now be condemned. Both requests were sent to the lords for agreement. The pressure seemed to work. Rumours began to circulate that the king was preparing to renounce Arminianism. As excitement grew, it appeared to be true. In extraordinary scenes at the Privy Council, Charles announced of the recent Arminian pronouncements, Mannering, Sibthorpe and the like, that he did utterly dislike these novelties. Whereupon Bishops Lord and Neil, arch-Arminians of course, who had been sitting smugly on the back of a string of recent victories over the Calvinist faction, suddenly found themselves throwing themselves on their knees in panic in the council meeting, declaring that they did disavow and protest that they did renounce the opinions of Arminius. A week could once be a long time in religion. But methinks the bishops doth disavow and protest too much. But, you know, we'll see. But there was more. Charles now revised his formal answer to the petition of right and was then read out to Parliament. Soit droit fait comme est désiré. Let it be done as is desired. It was total victory. The Commons erupted in a roar of applause. And in case you think that no one else cared about all these goings-on in Parliament, the news spread into the City of London, and far from being greeted with confusion or indifference, everyone went bonkers there too. The traditional form of celebration was fully indulged in. There were ringing of bells, bonfires were lit everywhere. Such a bad idea in a city of wood, but that's the way London rolled. Nothing to be done, just like Motorhead, they apparently did not wish to live forever. There were so many bonfires that one report had it that there were even more than when the Prince and Buckingham had returned from Spain. Interestingly, it seems that the lads of London assumed this also meant that Buckingham would be entoasted, so a band of city boys pulled down the scaffold on the Tower Hill, declaring that they must have a new one built just for Buckingham. On the 10th of June, the petition of right was instructed to be entered on the statute roll and printed. On the 14th of June, the Lords also threw the book at Roger Mannering and ordered him to pay a £1,000 fine and acknowledge his offences in writing and ordered his sermons to be burned. The Commons presented a remonstrance about Buckingham to the King and asked for him to be removed from the royal presence. Buckingham it was this time who now threw himself on his knees. He begged to be able to answer these charges. He wasn't worried by them, it has to be said. Charles refused. He said to the Commons that he'd think about the remonstrance, though in point of fact, I'm not sure he really did. Now the Somerset recess loomed. There was one rather crucial thing remaining, which was to vote the King tonnage and poundage. The Commons again said there wasn't really time. They needed to draft it properly, so they'd do it later. But meanwhile, King, don't collect any customs dues because that will be in contravention of our new petition of right. Here again, the snake slithers into the Garden of Eden because Charles was furious. Not just because, look, just let's get it done, it's urgent, on which I have to say I'd be fully on Charles's side. But now he started to claim that tonnage and poundage, hey, that's no way covered by the petition of right. That just confirmed ancient liberties. Oh, please, come on, we've just been through all of this. But before that incendiary pronouncement could reignite the conflagration, Charles had prorogued Parliament until October. Next time, we'll find out how this new world of peace, light and harmony pans out for everyone. Before I go, a quick word of the week, which is bump. I used the expression earlier, bump for the groom of the stool, and actually I was going to launch into a digression about the word then, but thought I'd leave it to the end. Anyway, I happened to go to the OED entry against the word, which described it as somewhat archaic. This was a really bad moment for me, I have to tell you. The word bump is part of my everyday life, I kid you not. And apparently my everyday life is therefore somewhat archaic. Not saying that's unfair, actually, but, you know, it hits hard. Anyway, my quick word of the week is, did you know, by the way, that bump is a genuine shortening of the expression bum fodder? And that the phrase bum fodder is a real thing, a phrase 
for toilet paper. It appears to originate during the English Revolution, as it happens, which is topical. The earliest entry in the OED is for 1650 from an epigram by one Robert Heath, which reads thus. Write to me oftener, I pray, so I may bum fodder have. Rude. The other entries are also quite fun. In 1699, in an article in a journal, there's the line, The upper lips looked as if they excreted through the nostrils and had forgot to use bum fodder. Gross, rude, but also funny. And then an anti-Jacobite one in 1705, saying of a Jacobite pamphlet, The people won't use them as bum fodder for fear of getting the piles. Yet again, rude, also made me laugh. So nice to see previous generations being as rude and sarcastic as us. Anyway, the diminutive of bum fodder, bumf, apparently originated in English public schools in the late 19th century and was also military slang. Anyway, I hope that has brought light where there is usually darkness, harmony where there was discord, as it were. Anyway, look, you see you next time, everyone. Have a wonderful fortnight. I have popped the petition of write-up on the history website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, with a bit of commentary, should you wish to share it. Though it won't stir the blood, I have to say, but it's interesting, and it's an important document in the development of the British Constitution. Also, don't forget about the British Revolutionary Biographies, or BRB, for the names of people. Next time, we'll hear about Buckingham, how the 1628 Parliament comes to an end, along with much else, of course. Welcome to my new Shedcast members, by the way, and thanks to all of you, as ever, for listening. Good luck and have a great fortnight. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 